Good morning. On behalf of uh, my wife, Katie, I want to say thank you all for all of you who have been praying for us, journeying with us for a year. Um, Katie's last procedure was a bronchoscopy, I think I pronounced that right, where uh, they had some issues in the lungs, wanted to make sure everything was clean and clear. Uh, that was a week ago Friday. We found out Wednesday that it is clear, thank the Lord. Uh, we seem to be cancer-free, and thank God. Yahoo. Oh. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for loving us so well. So many of you all uh, commented this morning. I wasn't going to mention it, but uh, I just had to say thank you. Katie is celebrating by getting sick. She's got the fever, so she's home. So uh, um, uh, you'll have to congratulate her when you see her. But again, I want to say thank you to all of you for all you've done. If you could turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in the Old Testament for six weeks uh, heading into Advent. And we're going to start in the book of Judges, a historical book in between Joshua and 1 Samuel. Uh, Today we will look at one of the Judges. We're going to look this morning and start off by looking at Judges chapter 17, verse 6. If you do not have your Bibles, uh, hopefully most of this will be on the screen. Also... You'll have it on the front of your bullet in the first verse. Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let us pray. Father God, what is abundantly clear this morning is that we need to hear from King Jesus. Father, a King who is powerful enough, Your own Son, who can defeat all of our enemies, even death itself, who can subdue us to Himself, and so that we're not a people here at Orangewood that are simply doing what's right in our own eyes. Because if that's the case, God, we're always going to do that which is evil in your eyes. So, King Jesus, because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, would you please send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into this room in a way that we can hear from our King this morning. Father, I don't want to do what's right in my eyes. And yet, that's my propensity. So many times, I don't really want to live in submission to a king or on mission for a king. But God, that's why we're yours and why you've created us. So, oh God, would you come with power through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of your word so you would open up our minds to understand this ancient text, this story of so long ago. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And and God, give us eyes to see Jesus in the midst of this story because He's our hero and He's the one this story preaches, that it points to. Father, our hearts that are in rebellion, our hearts that want to do what's right for our own heart, God, would You just lovingly wrap Your hands around them and would You lovingly squeeze until they submit. And Father, would You empower our feet so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. God, we pray that You and You alone and Your Son, Jesus, our King, receives glory. We receive joy and challenge 
that You'd be with us, Father God. Make this story come alive because it comes from Your Word that's living and active. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I love the years that cycle the Olympics to us. I don't know about you, but uh, when the Olympics come, I get excited. And just hearing that music, I mean, just as they come on, you hear the music and immediately my heart starts filling up with patriotism and maybe a little bit of nostalgia of the days in the past as a kid watching the Olympics. And i got to confess to you, I love the Winter Olympics. Maybe it's because I grew up in upstate New York that hosts Lake Placid in 1980 and the Miracle on Ice, one of the greatest sporting events in my lifetime. But I certainly do enjoy the Winter Olympics. And how about that Sean White? Is that guy amazing or what? I mean, he gets in that half pipe and he is so much better than anybody else. I mean, I mean, I cannot believe how high he gets and I cannot believe... The names that he calls his tricks can pronounce those and even what he's able to do. And boy, does Sean love his hair. Does he not? I mean, he's got the hair working. He's got that red hair going. Takes all, he's, you know, got it all working. He, he never misses a camera either, does he? I mean, Sean finds a camera. I relate to this guy. I like this guy, you know. Speaking of hair, Paulo Ono, another guy who seems to love his hair. And, uh, we got the hair covered with the Olympics in the winter. But the most medals ever in uh, uh, winter history for America, I got to tell you, I'm loving it. I'm cheering for sports. I don't even know what they are. <laughs> I have no idea how they do these things. You know, there's one thing called this Nordic Combine where apparently they ski jump and then they cross-country ski around this track like six times. Have you ever, have you ever cross-country skied before? One of the greatest exercises you can do. That is tough stuff. And I mean, I find myself screaming at the TV, come on, go, go, go. Thinking, I'm getting excited about sports no one has heard of. I watched a little bit of curling yesterday. Right? <laughs> I mean, what is that all about? Seriously. Don't you wonder sometimes, how did they invent these sports? You know that there's some lady up in Canada saying, where all my brooms go? <laughs> and how do you know your son or daughter is good at that? <laughs> man, look at him sweep. Man, that kid, he's got a future. <laughs> Proud of that one. Well, not all cycles uh, in history produce patriotism and nostalgia. Not all things that come around again and again and again make us feel good about ourselves, about our country, about our past. Well, we saw that that was certainly true of Evan Bay, huh? Uh, the uh, senator out of Indiana who says, I'm calling it quits. This cycle of this inept cycle of our government, I just can't handle it anymore. Politics in Washington seem to be so inept, I'm out. He says this, Congress is not operating as it should. Too much partisanship and not enough progress. He went on to say, too much narrow ideology and not enough practical problem solving. Do we hear an amen? But we won't go there. Evan Bay, he would have had the same feelings 
if he was a judge in the nation of Israel's history. If he was a judge that God raised up to save and to rescue his people, he would have the same feelings that the cycle doesn't seem to get better. I mean, a period in history where we keep on doing the same dumb things. We keep on falling into sin. We keep on having our enemies defeat us. We keep on having, a, we rejected God and we have to cry out and he has to keep on rescuing us. But it doesn't get any better. That's really what happens throughout the judges. During that time, Israel could not find a godly leader, maybe even a, a godly king who could do this, who could bring lasting peace. Wouldn't it be great if we just bring one leader that could really bring lasting peace? They couldn't find one. They couldn't find a leader that would even subdue their own hearts. One who would shepherd the people. You know how hard that is? So what happens? Well, people were doing what was right in their own eyes. They didn't have this godly king. They didn't have this godly leader. So they said, you know what? We'll govern ourselves. We'll do what's right according to our eyes. Is that a good formula? Wow. Now you read the book of Judges and you see that politically, socially, spiritually, everything is unraveling. God's people are coming undone. The whole fabric of society, God's people were really coming undone. So today we begin this six-week series, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to be on search, we're going to be on a journey together through the Old Testament in hopes of finding a godly king. Because the entire book of Judges is basically an argument saying this, we need a godly king. We need a king who could come and really destroy our enemies finally and keep them at bay. We need a king that could come, that could really subdue our hearts. And so this six weeks, we're going to spend time in God's Old Testament. Back in the back of the beginning of the Bible, or as the, God's word starts to unfold for us. And here's what we're going to journey to look for. God, is there a covenant-keeping king? Is there really a king after your own heart? Is there really a king? Is there really a political leader who does what's right? Is there really a king who keeps his word? Is there really a king who looks out for you first and foremost and for the people and not himself? Is there really a covenant-keeping king? Is there really a king who can defeat the Goliaths of our life? Is there really a king who could really take on an enemy, even death? Is there really a king who could subdue our hearts? And this six-week journey will lead us right to Palm Sunday and right to the answer. And the answer of this godly king's name, Jesus. So here I am, going again, starting a new series. I'm going to tell you the beginning. It's all going to be about Jesus. Amazing. Even the Old Testament, we're going to see, wow, Jesus is going to emerge as the true hero, the true victor, and the one that we long for, and the one that we greatly need. Well, hey, parents, i got to tell you as we begin, uh, this journey through God's Word is probably a little bit closer to PG-13. Um, this is uh, not necessarily always safe for the little ears, uh, but they should come, because why? This is God's Word, and and I'm going to preach God's Word. I'm going to read the stories. And we're going to read the stories. You're going to say, are you kidding me? That's in the Bible? That story's in the Bible? Wow. You're going to say, man, they've got to make that into a TV show. That's an action thriller. So bring your Bibles. Uh, bring your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start in Judges. We'll go through the Old Testament. We're going to 
end with a guy named Melchizedek, but I'm getting ahead of myself, and that's going to point us to Jesus. So um, the first, our journey begins with a, with a, uh, pro, uh, with a judge. Uh, by the way, a judge here can be called a savior through the books of Judges. A judge is a savior. Uh, he's kind of a warlord. So when you hear the word judge, when you read through that, kind of think of a, a warlord. It's, it's one who's uh, amazingly strong, a conqueror, a savior, um, if you will, and also one who rules the people. And we begin by looking at a man named Ehud. Ehud. Let me give you a little bit of background. I read to you one verse already uh, in 17.6. Here's the problem, that God's people were not being uh, ruled by a godly king. The problem is they're all doing what they want to do. They're living with a deal of, hey, if it feels right, do it. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. You know, I'm just going to do what feels good, uh, what, what makes most sense to me. And they've gotten themselves into some pretty bad situations. And so there's this cycle in the book of Judges. It's really interesting. God says uh, there was no king, godly king at this time. And the people kept on sinning. They kept on doing the wrong thing. It's not right in God's eyes. And God say, man, I warned you about this. And so your enemies are going to come. And and because of judgment, they're going to take over. And they do. And so they get somebody comes and takes over their land and destroys them and they cry out saying, oh, God, we're sorry. Well, actually, they only repented once. They say, God, can you save us? They cry out, God, again, those foxhole prayers, God, will you save us? And God raises up what he calls in Scripture the Savior, this judge. And he destroys, this judge comes along, empowered by God, destroys the enemy, and they bring peace. You know how long peace lasts? Until the judge dies. The judge dies, and guess what happens? Same old cycle. Same old sins. Nothing's getting better. You read the book of Judges, and you're worn out because God's people are absolutely just boneheads. I mean, they don't get it. And you could clearly say, these judges aren't working. Can we please have a godly king? Well, let's look a little bit at this cycle. We're going to start off with Judges 2. Judges 2, uh, verses 10 through 19, will tell us about this cycle that I just told you about. Then we'll get to Ehud. Judges 10, I'm sorry, 2, verse 10. And after that generation, that generation was Joshua, Joshua leading them into the promised land, were gathered to their fathers, so they passed away. And there arose another generation after them, this is the second generation, who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Parents, it's so important for us to tell our children God's story. they got to know it. One generation, they're failing. Just one. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. These are the foreign gods in the territory that God had given to them. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among them the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. These are the the gods. They're living like pagans who don't believe in God. They're no different as God's people than the people around them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. 
And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges. Again, here, think of kind of uh, saviors. Think of warlords who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices of their stubborn ways. Wow, you get a little bit of a glimpse there of this cycle. I mean, continually cycle of evil, doing the wrong thing. Uh, and God saying, I'm, I'm going to try to save you here, but you keep going on to the wrong thing. Well, let's look at that first judge today. The first judge we're going to look at is Ehud. My daughter's sixth grade class happens to be studying the book of Judges. I felt like the world's greatest dad. I found out that she's studying Judges, and I'm like, I'm preaching on Judges, girl. We're going to get an A in this class. If we don't, we're in trouble, I'm telling you. Um, And they said a pretty cool project that the teacher, Julie Weathersby, said. She said, uh, hey, look at all the Judges. There's 12 of them, kind of an interesting number, like 12 tribes of Israel. Look at the Judges and pick a character from Hollywood or a character in the world that you think best represents that judge. Well, if I had to give you a character as we start the story that could best represent Ehud, think Jack Bauer, okay? Think Jack Bauer. If you, miss, if you don't watch 24, you got to get a little, bit, a little bit of your life. It's a good show. Watch it. It's entertaining. But Jack Bauer is a, a star of this show, 24, who kind of goes against everybody. He's his own warrior. Uh, he's, he's covert. Uh, he loves pain. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't really like uh, uh, listening to authority much. I mean, it's Jack Bauer, savior of America, according to 24. Well, Ehud is a lot like Jack Bauer. Cool as a cucumber when he needs to be. Crafty. But I'm telling you what, he loves pain. We're going to see that. And an amazing warrior. So let's look at this amazing story. And what I'm going to do is as I read this story, uh, I'm going to give you some commentary along the way. Okay, Judges 3, starting with verse 12. Ehud, by the way, is the second judge. Othniel is the first one. He's from the tribe of Judah, but we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here comes this cycle. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Eglon, by the way, means little calf. Might be a little play on the words there. This little calf is going to now become one who oppresses Israel. Why? Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites... And they went and defeated Israel. Now Israel already would be kind of ticked with this story. Because the Moabites and the Ammonites are kind of relatives. 
In the book of Genesis, there's a story after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah of Lot and his daughters who take off and are saved. And then there's some hanky-panky in that relationship. And that incestuous relationship produces the Moabites and the Ammonites. And here we have those who are kind of connected but are certainly on the other side of the family tree you don't want to talk about that are now whooping up on them. And they took uh, possession of the city of Palms. Verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Well, here comes the cycle. The people of Israel cried out. That's what they did to the Lord. They They ignored him, and yet things got bad. They had these foxhole prayers. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. Interesting. This is so cool. This is God's word. It says this about this Ehud. He says, Ehud is a Benjamite, okay? Now, we're going to talk about that in just a second. But it also says that Ehud was left-handed. He really could mean that he had a gimpy right hand, but there's something trickster about Ehud, okay? He's got a left hand. And guess what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. And so here you have one who's the left-handed son of the right-handed son, okay? And you can immediately see, wow, it's a really cool play on words here. Um, This Ehud, this crafty one who's left-handed, yet he's the son of my right hand. Go figure. But it's interesting also, it talks about that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. The first judge is the tribe of Judah. One thing that, this is important. Listen, don't think this is an important stuff. This is amazingly important stuff. And this is what makes the Bible so amazingly beautiful and wonderful. So listen, this is amazing. The entire book of Judges is going to take one tribe and elevate it higher than anyone else. It's going to take one tribe and say, this tribe is the one we are to hope in. If you look back to Judges 1, verse 2, the book starts with that we got to go take care of the promised land. Joshua's gone. We didn't get all the promised land. And they ask this question. In Judges 1, 2, they say this. What tribe should go up first? And it says this. Judah. Judah should go up first. And all of a sudden, what the writer wants us to really see is the tribe that is getting the most prominence, the tribe that's getting the most tension, is the tribe of Judah. As a matter of fact, the entire chapter 1 is going to talk about how Judah did what they were supposed to do. They destroyed all their enemies. They got rid of all that was bad. And then it says this in 120, I believe, or 119. It says this, but the Benjamites, but the Benjamites, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They, they married with the families around them. They didn't destroy what God asked them to destroy. The Benjamites, by the time you're done with the book of Judges, you just want to spit thinking of the Benjamites. And these are nasty people. They did such some nasty sin, some amazingly nasty sin at the end of the book. You ready for this? that the 11 tribes of Israel said, we got to kick Benjamin's backside. We got, I mean, they're so evil, we're going to have civil war. And there's a civil war that breaks out between all the tribes of Israel and against Benjamin. And guess who the first tribe was? They said, who should go up against Benjamin? Who should be that first tribe? You know what it is? It's Judah. Okay, you ready for this? You ready for this? This is like, this is like, this is like a puzzle solver right here. You ready? The book of Judges connects Joshua's conquest to the promised land to the need for a godly king. 
The need from the godly king is going to come from what tribe? Anybody know? Judah. So the whole time of Judges, guess who the hero is going to be? Judah. Who's the first king? This is going to be next week. Who's the first king the nation of Israel chooses because they want a king like the other nations? Saul. Guess where Saul came from? Benjamin. The tribe of the Benjamites. So this is amazing. This whole book that tells us that we need a godly king, that there's a king named Jesus coming, there's a king named David before that, but the bottom line is this, this godly king better be from Judah, he better not be from Benjamin. Benjamin's, the Benjamites, they, they, they are not the heroes of this story. It's going to be from Judah. By the way, if you're a Benjamite here, you, you have an ancestry of the Benjamites, who in the New Testament was a great Benjamite? Anybody know? Paul. Says Paul was a Benjamite. So it's not all bad. But the, the cool thing of this story that you might miss is it, it lists the first kings from Judah. Judah's the hero, not the Benjamites. So here you have this left handed man of a son of a right hand, the Benjamite. Isn't that cool? I, I just hope that God's word through this series becomes wow. It is so beautiful. It is such one story. If someone tells you that ancient text, tell them, have you read it? It's amazing. Okay, let's get on with the story. So uh, Ehud goes, he's going to give tribute. That's what the people had to do. They were conquered, so they were going to bring all this tribute to this, this, this king named Eglon. Um, and so here he goes, he's going to do it. So they, the people of Israel sent tribute uh, by him, by Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. We're going to pick up in verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, which is about 18 inches. Okay, so here you go. This is, this is Jack Bauer. He's got an 18-inch sword. What's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to bind it to his right thigh under his clothes. Okay, so he's got this 18-inch sword right here on, this, on, on his uh, right thigh. Why is that important? Well, because you don't have usually a left-handed warrior. If the, when the, they come through and pass through the security gates, they're not checking at that time his right thigh. This is an amazing Jack Bauer moment. I'm going to put it here. I'll get by the, uh, all the security guards. They'll be checking here, not over here, and I'll have my moment. And so let's continue. So he has this 18-inch sword uh, on, on his leg, under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Could be a source of power. A lot of times, if you had a lot of power, you ate, you get all this tribute. It could be saying how much power he had. But he was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. Here you go, you got it. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Interesting. He goes by the idols, and he's probably baiting the king into thinking, he's hearing something from the gods. He's hearing something. He just passed the idols. And now he has a secret message for me. By the way, the secret message is kind of a double entendre. Guess what that secret message is? It's that sword. It's that 18-inch sword that he has. That's going to be the secret message. Um, but he himself turned back uh, near the idols. I said that uh, secret message from you, um, and uh, O King. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him, and he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, "Say hello to my little friend." 
That's what he said. Say hello to my little friend. I mean, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand. He took out the sword um, from his right thigh. And you ready for this? And he thrusted it into his belly. Wow. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull out the sword of his belly. And the dung came out. If you're reading the NIV, be a little upset. The NIV cleaned that up. They didn't tell you, want to tell you what came out. They didn't. You read the original Hebrew? Stephen's loving this message over there. So, can you imagine that? There it is. God doesn't clean up his stories. And God doesn't clean up the people of his stories. He lets his son come do that. He gives us all the details with all the gore, all the blood, all the dome. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed. And he got, you got to picture this guy. Here he is. He, he, just, he just disemboweled the king. That's what he did. Literally. I mean, it's gross. He just left his sword, his 18-inch messenger, inside King Eglon. Falling to the floor, and then as cool as the other side of the pillow. As cool as a cucumber, as cool as Jack Bauer, Clint Eastwood, whoever we look to as cool cucumbers, John Wayne, whoever, here's what he does. He goes out on the porch, he locks the door of the roof chamber behind him, um, and walks out. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool of the chamber. I mean, think about it. I mean, they told us what's on the floor. They're smelling it. Man, that king, okay. Locking the door. I guess every king has a throne. We just found his, didn't we? All right? Sorry. Thank you, Billy. And they waited till they were embarrassed. They waited for him until he's embarrassed, you know? You, you've had that. Just waiting for someone who's in the bathroom thinking, oh my goodness, what in the world? <laughs> but when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chambers, they took the key and they opened them and they laid, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed. I mean, it was amazing. Locked the door, making it sound like or, or, or sense, feel like that he was going to the bathroom. He passed beyond the idols and escaped into Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, I love this, follow after me, for the Lord, the Lord God is always the hero of the Bible. Always. Always. Has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. And the strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the, and the land had rest for 80 years. 
Usually when a godly judge, a savior, warlord secures a place, the longer they had peace, the more godly was associated with the judge. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox gourd, a thing you used to drive oxes. Man, another Jack Bauer. He also saved Israel. And the last verse is this, in verse 1 of chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud couldn't bring lasting peace. Ehud couldn't even subdue the people to himself. I mean, what an amazing story. But the bottom line is this story points to the reality that people need a godly king who could secure lasting peace from their enemies. A king who could subdue them and who could shepherd them and bring peace to themselves. A king that would be so glorious and so grand and so gracious that we would look to this king and say, King, I don't want to do what's right in my eyes, but you are one who is all wise. You are one who is almighty. You are a king worth worshiping and serving. King Jesus is his name. I want to do what's right in your eyes. We need that same king today. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the offices that Christ executes as our Redeemer. The things that He does for us. And it says this, question 26 says, How does Christ execute the office of a king? How is Jesus basically a king? This is one born in Bethlehem. I mean, how, how does He really become king? It says this, Christ executeth the office of a king. He becomes king. In subduing us to Himself. In ruling and defending us. And in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. This godly King named Jesus came for sinners like you and me who want to do what's right in our own eyes. Ultimately, to to subdue us to Himself. Jesus didn't come to be our counselor, although He is. Jesus didn't come just to be our friend, although He is. Jesus came as King for us to kneel, for us to submit, for us to say, You, O King Jesus, have the right to reign and rule in my life. Subdue my sin. Subdue me. Conquer my enemies. What enemies did Jesus battle against? He battled against Satan himself. He battled against God's and ours greatest enemy of sin and death. And He battled them all the way to a cross. And that tomb was empty and He won. And all of the triumph that King Jesus has as the covenant-keeping godly King, all of the rewards that the Father gives to a Son who's obedient, He gives to us. And everything that He had conquered over death and destroyed death by death itself, He gives us that victory. He says, my victory is your victory. My winnings are your winnings. My inheritance is your inheritance. Jesus is the King that the book of Judges points to. That ultimately we find. Do you know Him? See, but what's the problem? The problem is, I still want to do what's right in my eyes. Do you want to do what's right in your eyes? 
I mean, that's the ultimate problem here in the book of Judges. I mean, it says it several times. It says in 17.6, it says in 18.1, it says in 19.1. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, 21.25, says the same thing. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And that day there wasn't a godly king. Orangewood, my brothers and sisters, we cannot live this way. Because we have a godly king. And for us to live and do what's right in our own eyes is an affront to Him. He has come so that we can now live our lives in submission to a king. Okay, what in the world does this guy say? What is submission to a king? We're Americans. We don't know kings. I mean, kings are something we rent movies and maybe Mel Gibson fights them or something like that. I mean, what's a king? Do you you know how hard this is for us? We, We have real issues here. There's two issues. One is our human nature. We are made in God's image, but we want God to serve us and not us to serve him. Did I say that right? Yes. Not us to serve him. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. And we're Americans. We're very suspicious of power. We're very suspicious of authority. We've been trained to give limited power to anybody. Do not give away the farm. If we don't like our president, well, let's not reelect him. Or if he's really bad, let's impeach him. We've got to understand that authority is not a good thing to us as Americans oftentimes. We rail against it and our sinful nature. And, and here, I think that we miss what God is calling us is because we still basically want to do what's right in our own eyes. Seriously. How much in submission are we to King Jesus? Seriously. Let's think about this week. What do you have coming up this week? What's on your schedule? I mean, how much of your schedule are you going to submit it to King Jesus? Or how much are you going to do from the most mundane tasks to the biggest thing? For the biggest decisions. Maybe students thinking about where they're going to go to college. Maybe it's, it's business deals or moms or whatever. How many things are you going to do this week in, that's right in your eyes? Or how many things are you going to do this week saying, i got to submit to King Jesus. And he needs to be king over all of my all of my decisions. How do we do it? You know, as I thought about this text, I thought about, I, I don't even know we know how to do this. What does it mean to live in submission to King Jesus? Well, I really believe it's, it's every decision we have, it's, it's everything we do that we say, God, may I see this through your eyes. God, may I not do what's righteous in my eyes. God, may I truly be in submission to a king named Jesus. I mean, we have relationships in our life we don't want to submit to him. Well, maybe the Bible says that we shouldn't be living together. Maybe the Bible says that this is a sinful thing. Or maybe the Bible says, I don't really want to submit there. I, I just, nah, not me. The Bible says that maybe we, 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 we should tithe. 10% should be given and brought into the storehouse. It acknowledges that Jesus is king of all of our lives. And, and I mean, that's not, not really to apply to me. I'm not going to submit there. I'm mean, having to do what's right in my own eyes. In so many areas of our lives, isn't that true? I mean, do we not need to repent? I mean, do we not need to look deeply and say, how much are we still living our lives that's right in our own eyes? And aren't we like those Israelites when we get into a dying, we cry out and say, God, save us. This is bad. And then we kind of cycle back out and kind of forget them and still go do what's right in our eyes. You see, he's a gracious, loving father, and he's not going to let us go. But the call today is this. Submit yourself to King, a King named Jesus. Doing what's right in your eyes, it's just going to lead to a cycle 
of failure. I think, in closing, God really wants us to see ourselves rightly through the gospel of grace. See ourselves. And listen, here's how God wants us to leave here with a new perspective of living in submission to realize that Jesus really did come and he really did conquer all of our enemies. Listen, listen, do you really know that death has been destroyed by Jesus? Do you really, really know that your sins were nailed to that cross? Do you really know that he's robed us in his righteousness and now he wants us to view ourselves as he sees us as part of Christ's kingdom, as joint heirs with him, deeply loved and forgiven and set free? If that's the case, if we could see ourselves rightly, that the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb that's more precious than gold and silver was spilled for us so we could be brought into royalty. That the robe of Christ's righteousness was given to us so we could wear the raiment of a king named Jesus. If we rightly see ourselves, we will want to live and be compelled by the love of Christ to now live for Him. To see our neighbor more loving ways. And you know, for me, it's to understand and to be able to love myself. Because I still do what's right in my own eyes. And the enemy wants to use that for me to beat myself up and forget that gospel perspective. But yes, but I'm loved and I'm forgiven and I'm free. How is it with you? We also realize we've got to be on mission for Jesus. Not just submit to him, but now we live our lives in mission to him next week. Let's pray. Father, thanks for an amazing story. I just, wow. I just love your word that's going to give us stories of like Ehud. And God, I love the book of Judges that's so perfectly, seamlessly going to take us from Joshua, covenant keeper, leader, and bring us to Samuel and a godly king that we so long, long for, so much need. God, thank you for telling us your word in a way that's so earthy and so real and so true. And God, I thank you that we don't have to sit away from it, but we can relate to these stories. But God, what's most important is when we hear your word, it's not that we're entertained. It's not even that we're educated. It's that we're transformed. Is that we now see more clearly Christ as King. And we now more dearly serve Him and submit to Him with great joy and love. God, I pray for the ones here today that don't know Jesus as King, that are doing what's right in their own eyes. May the cycle of failure lead them to Your amazing grace. May they see Christ as the King who has conquered their sin and death and bring them to Yourself. Give them the gift of faith. And may they have new life in Christ. Father God, for those of us who, who have Jesus as King, but He's just not always the right spot. We're still doing what's right in our own eyes. Holy Spirit, come. Come powerfully. Forgive our arrogance of doing what's right in our own eyes. Even in the simple things this week, teach us to submit to a godly King named Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.